Hi, this is Robert O'Reilly. My name is Gowron. Honor to you and your house. You're listening to Trek FM. Hello and welcome to another episode of Earl Grey, Trek FM's dedicated podcast to the next generation. I'm your host, Richard Marquez, and today we have a special guest, Morgan Gendel. Hi. Hi, how are you, Richard? Thanks for having me on. No problem. I can't even tell you how much of an honor this is. I love your work. And if anyone doesn't know what Morgan's done for the TNG universe, he is the writer of Inner Light as well as the Starship Mind. And also, he was also the writer for Deep Space Nine, Armageddon Game, and also The Passenger. And to give you guys a little trivia, he was also the uh, the winner of the Hugo Award for Star Trek Next Generation's Inner Light, the first television writer since the original Star Trek series 22 years earlier to win the award. Also, he's an uh, Emmy nominee for Law and Order back in 1996, as well as uh, Writers Guild of America nominee for Law and Order episode Savages. All right. Are you excited about getting this done? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely. That's a little that's a little walk down memory lane right there. Some of those things were a while ago, but uh, that's what happens if you stay in the business long enough. Yeah. Looking at your filmography, you've got one great career. I, I, I didn't even know that you were on some of these and it was just fantastic to go down, look at all these uh, shows that you've produced as well as written. And it's fantastic. It's an honor to be with, uh, to be talking with you right now. Oh, well, nice of you to say so. It's it's an honor for me to be here and connecting with your fans. Uh, it's interesting to hear you say that because I actually started in television when it was such a different business than it is now with, with shows being so serialized. Um, I think TV is probably in its heyday right now. Yeah. Yeah, most definitely. I, I, I totally agree. So um, let's talk about inner light. Uh, so, sure. uh, you know, did you know or realize at the time that you were writing an episode which would be revered or talked about uh, for so many years with inner light? Or was it just a flash in the pan inspiration? Well, it, it, it was kind of fall somewhere between those two. I mean, it, it, the reason that it wasn't a flash in the pan inspiration, I did come up with the idea very suddenly um, because I had an appointment to go in and pitch them. I was not on staff and I was going to go pitch Michael Piller. And so I came up with a basic core concept pretty quickly. But then I came back to pitch that like five times. I had to keep working on it because Michael would say, you know, I like something you have going here, but it's not quite ready yet. And instead of saying, yeah, we're going to take it and develop it. I think it actually worked in my favor. They said, come back when, when it, you know, checks off more of these boxes. So I got to work on it on my own, which was great. And not, not, not that I wanted to work on it on my own, but I just, it, it, it evolved. I, I helped it evolve. And so when I finally came in and pitched it and sold it, I feel I had gotten it to a, to a much higher level than I started with. And that was very gratifying. So it wasn't a flash in the pan, but in terms of knowing what you have, that's why I mentioned at the outset about TV being so different that it was all episodic instead of serialized. The idea was I was coming in to pitch an episode 
and it was a standalone episode. And as Ron Moore has said since, nobody realized the impact of the inner life and, and what it did what it meant for Picard that it sort of, he had this other life he was carrying around in him. And in theory, by the next episode, he should have been a really downbeat guy having lost his whole family and his whole civilization. And when I say his, it's, uh, you know, technically Cayman's, but these were permanent memories inside his head. So it felt totally real to him. But I would say when I, Michael was kind enough to ask me to come in to view the, um, the rough cut with them. And I could see then everybody knew there was just something special about this episode. Was the character for always Picard or was there a, uh, another character that you were chosen for this role? Yeah, I think when I first pitched it, it was going to be like uh, um, uh, Picard and Riker and Roe Laren were all caught in kind of this loop that they didn't realize was sort of like um, almost not a video game, at the time, but, 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 uh, it was, it was inside their heads, but they, they were all characters. So it wasn't just Picard alone in this situation. And then as the idea evolved, uh, Michael Pillar and his wisdom saw that it could be the opportunity to put Picard on the road, not taken. And, and I had been a little wary of suggesting he was married because I, that just seemed like too out of the box, but I kind of got us up to the point and, Michael took it the rest of the way. Said, "Well, yeah, let's 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 give him a family." And then, and by then, it just became clear it should just it should be a Picard episode. And obviously, they were very smart to do that. Right, and, and I totally agree with that uh, decision. It for sure was a very touching story, and uh, it's one of my favorite stories. Especially the flute is one of my thing. Did you rent it to 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 be like that, or did you know what the music was going to be like, or something like along those lines? Well, I didn't. I didn't compose the music, but I. The, the, I'd say one of the things I'm most proud of in that episode is the flute because, you know, and I've given talks about this. I, I say, you know, if you do the math, if you figure out what are we going to have that's going to signify after a half hour, so he's not by the probe, he lies unconscious, he wakes up. What is going to show us that he's different and has a bit of this culture in him? And so, you know, I joke, you, you could have him sitting in the corner with a little notebook writing the name Eileen over and over and over again, the name of his wife on Catan. And of course, that's not it. So it had to be something he could do that showed he had mastered something. Um, and it can't be some kind of sports activity, because how would you show that? And, and then when you, even when you get down to a musical instrument, it's got to be something very simple that might carry over between these two cultures. It can't be like an electric you know, um, you know, guitar. <laughs> it's got to, so, so by the process of elimination, I got it down to the flute. And when I, when I, I'm sure you've heard me talk about this before, when I came in the day, you know, we were already working on the story and I pitched the idea of the flute. I kind of got some laughter in the room. They thought it was like, frankly, they thought it was ridiculous. That was a ridiculous idea that Picard's going to be going around playing this flute. And I think it's they were picturing like if you know the jazz flute is Kirby Hancock. They pictured he was like there, like playing jazz flute. <laughs> I mean, it just seemed incongruous. But then you know, once they figured out it was this recorder kind of thing, so I didn't actually, of course, you know, Jay Chataway did a tremendous job on that particular piece of music. But I wrote in my original draft of the script the impact in the final scene. Um, 
And this is the other thing. I just feel so, uh, so gratifying. They shot that fine. A lot of things were changed from my original script, and we could talk about that if you want. I mean, uh, just kind of some structural things. What were the changes that uh, that were altered uh, from the original screenwrite to uh, the actual story that we saw on uh, The Inner Light? You know, what happens, and when you say I wrote it, that's very kind of you. Uh, Peter Allen Fields, who was on staff, is credited as a co-writer of the teleplay. And the reason for that is on every show, when you have an outsider come in, you, you have to hand it off at some point to somebody who's on the staff just to fix things uh, that are going to make it producer-friendly for that particular episode. I'll give you an example. Um, you know, I always thought, the captain of a ship is zapped by a probe and falls unconscious. What's the first thing that should happen? So let me ask you, Richard, what the captain of a ship falls unconscious. What's the first thing you should do? Uh, I guess that depends on who I'm, I am like the XO or something like that. Well, just, just, just as a person, what would you think would happen? If somebody, if somebody in the room right now just passes out, what do you do? And I'll, I'll, I'll make it easy for you on a ship. You should bring them to sick bay. They should say immediately. So in my original draft, of course, they brought him to sick bay, and that's where everything else is happening to him. This is what I mean by a structural thing. So um, the producers figured it out, and you have to do this all the time. I've been a showrunner on other shows, and you have to kind of figure out your budget. And they say, hey, you know what? If we don't have to use the sick bay set, which means lighting it and moving all the equipment in there, we could shave that much off our budget and use it for special effects. So they came up with the idea of letting him just lie on the floor there. So that's the kind of thing a producer on the show has to do. They have to, they have to change the writing and then that's pulling on a thread. So you have different people in the room, things like that. What happened was it took probably five or six months to keep pitching the show and getting it approved. Once they had it in good shape, they realized it was, it was going to be a special episode. And so at that point, at that point, they were kind of rushing it into production. And so I think in a lot of um, a lot of cases where I would have like on Starship Mine, I, I did a draft. I got notes from uh, Jerry Taylor and Ron Moore and did a second draft. And that that's the draft that they then worked off of. On Inner Light, I only did the first draft. And so, um, you know, when the producer is doing the production draft, they change other things. For example, I had. Cayman had more than one friend. I thought it made it, his life seem very full and real to have a couple of guys, and they were always teasing him about his love of this fictional, imaginary starship. And so they were really kind of sticking it to him, and it made it seem kind of real. And then in the production draft, they just eliminated his two extra friends and boiled it down to one friend, which I think was a good decision. So those are the kind of things I'm talking about. And yet through it all, and in the final scene of him being alone with the flute, just playing and, and it's, it, it was so gratifying because it's exactly um, what I hope it, what I was hoping they would do, which is he's alone and you cut to the ship and just the emptiness of space. And all you hear is the flute playing. It's very, very moving. And combined with Jay Chataway's score it was just that's what makes people tear up at the end of this episode 
I, I, I'm just going to tell you this right now. I am getting chills right now thinking about that last scene. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, We actually just did an episode not too long ago about my first time ever watching Star Trek, which was Tin Man. Funny enough, Jay Chataway was also uh, composing that. He was actually, actually, that was his first composing of a Star Trek episode. And, oh, um, interesting. Yeah, because he did, I, I don't know how many seasons he did, but he did a lot. He did a lot of things. Wow. Yeah. He definitely did a lot. He did a lot in Voyager that's for sure because i remember seeing his voice seeing his name all the time and it's it's it, the music is amazing and in, in the episode tin man there's also it's the same kind of flute and it's it's one of those one of those memories that i remember so very much and then inner light is also one of those uh, episodes as well as another episode later on down the road called lessons where we uh where i don't know if you're familiar with it but picard basically uh uh tries romance again and he does it through music with another officer uh who is a, p- a pianist and they fall in love and, he, and he all plays that the flute, doesn't he he plays the flute again right exactly yes he plays the flute again yeah. and it's the it's the first time we really see him playing the uh flute once again besides inner light but it, it's just yeah. so amazing it, that flute is so amazing I, I i can't even i can't even tell you how awesome that is <laughs> Well, so you can imagine they go from the meeting when they're kind of laughing. When I say they, Michael laughed, and if he laughed, these other people in the room laughed too. And you know, I wasn't humiliated as much as I thought. God, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta do a better job selling them on this. I went home, and uh, I told my wife the whole story, and I said, "How can I convince them?" And that's when I actually first conceived of the idea of, um, of kind of a. I was actually going to bring in a flute to them to show them that it didn't have to be like uh, what we think of as a modern flute. It could be more like a recorder. And, and, and I didn't need to do that. I went the second time, Michael said, we thought about it and we've reconsidered and we think the flute is a good idea. So to me, that is the single most monumental decision of that episode. You know, outside the fact that he greenlit me even pursuing this as an episode, but it was the flute because I've had so many people come up to me at conventions and um, a lot of people saying how this episode changed their lives. And they realized that, you know, you could, you could be something you never thought you'd be, which is in Picard's case was a parent. He didn't think he'd be good with kids. It turned out to be very good with kids. But I also have people coming up to me just talking about music and music teachers saying how they show this episode. And, you know, obviously very, very gratifying, but I'm, I'm really glad he said yes to the flute. It, a- absolutely. Yeah, it's definitely one of those great. And obviously it was a great choice. And it was also a very touching uh, story because you won the Hugo Award for this. How does yeah. that feel? <laughs> um, yeah, no, it feels pretty good. Uh, I mean, the Hugo Award has changed and now I'm pretty sure they give it out to TV every year. So um, I feel there should be an asterisk after um, the Hugo Award from from I believe it was '92 when I got it. That this was this was not easily uh, earned or awarded because I the Inner Light was competing with some movies from that same year, so it was a big deal. I felt very good about it. it was kind of um, you know I got away from science fiction pretty soon thereafter, but when I came back to it, it was partially because I thought you know the, the Hugo Award seemed to me to be like uh, a pretty significant thing. Oh yeah, absolutely, uh, absolutely. I mean, it, it's it's gratifying to see that at least. I mean, there are a lot of Star Trek stories out there that 
for sure should have been at least nominated for any kind of an award. But sometimes it's, you know, that's not how it is. You know, not everyone sees sci-fi as the, <laughs> as the greatest uh, story, to, uh, way to uh, tell stories, but that's okay. No big deal. At least we got some of the most important ones like Inner Light, <laughs> as well as At the City at the Edge of Forever is also another one. Um, it was actually the last one that uh, received an award since since your story, yeah. actually. Yeah, yeah it's, uh, it's actually, to, to correct you, it was 25 years earlier. And, uh, and yeah, the uh, City on the Edge of Forever won the Hugo, and they did not give it out to television again until the inner light. And, you know, I, I've been friendly with Harlan Ellison over the years. We served on a Writers Guild board together, and I, I saw him just a couple of years ago. And, uh, you know, <laughs> if if... If there's when they ranked the episodes recently, I think it was Playboy magazine ranked all the 725 episodes, and uh, City on the Edge of Forever was number one, and In the Light was number two. I'm fine with that. I think City on the Edge of Forever is fabulous. It was always one of my favorites, and uh, but to think that 25 years go by, and you know there just really wasn't that much on TV to get to even be up for Hugo, but. Um, you know, I think they look at the inner light. What, what people forget sometimes is the inner light cannot exist in a vacuum. It, it, it only works because of all those other episodes that came before it. And I'm not just saying this to, you know, to, to share any, any praise or anything, but it's really true. You have to have a sense of what Picard is to have an episode that shows him as what he was not. Right. Exactly. Exactly. You know, actually, that's funny. You, uh, you mentioned Harley uh, Ellison. <clears throat> um, oh my gosh. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, Harlan Ellison. Uh, and actually, that was going to be my next question. It was a, a friend of mine wanted me to ask, how did it feel to win the first Hugo uh, for a T or the first Hugo for a TV show since the city of Edge of Forever cementing your relationship with Harlan Ellison? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you already yeah. answered that. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. When, when, when it first won the award, um, I had to read about it. Like the Star Trek people didn't actually call me and say, Hey, guess what? It won the Hugo award. And for many years I carried around feeling like, wow, that was kind of insulting. And then I spoke to somebody who, who was very in the know and said, you have to realize that the Hugo award just, it didn't, it didn't mean as much to, to the show as it did to you. The, for, for a show, it's all about the ratings and Emmys and all that. And the Hugo Award, because it was not given out much on TV, it was not it was not, not like a make or break thing. It's a literary award. It's almost always given out to uh, to novels. And so, first call I made was to Harlan Ellison. I said, Harlan, let me ask you something. When when you won the award, uh, the Hugo Award, I mean, it's a it's a writing award, correct? He says. I'm sitting here looking at it right up my mantle right now, baby. <laughs> what he said. The Hugo Award was on his mantle there, and and so um, that 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 was my first introduction to to Har- to uh, the Hugo and and to Harlan as the winner of the Hugo, even though we had, we already knew each other. So Starship Mine is lovingly called Star Trek's Die Hard. Did you uh, did the movie? <laughs> <laughs> you know where I'm going with this. Did the movie itself play any inspiration to your writing process? You know, I used to say no, because Die Hard has been used many times, like um, Under Siege, a movie written by my good friend J.F. Lawton, who he and I ended up working together on a show called VIP, 
that he created and I ran. Um, Under Siege, the Steven Seagal movie, is Die Hard on a Ship. And then Passenger 57 is Die Hard on a Plane. So it's been done a lot. So I used to say no because, you know, I didn't, I, I, I didn't know what, if it, what it would do in terms of any infringement on their story. But here's the truth, because I think enough years have gone by. I pitched Starship Mine as Die Hard on the Enterprise. I have to admit it. I went in there and I said, Michael, I've got a great idea of how to do Die Hard on the Enterprise. Awesome. I, I, I can't even tell you how awesome that is, because... When I since since I've been doing this podcast back in December, uh, one of the things that I've been noticing is that you know things I haven't really I, I haven't really thought about like like Starship Mine uh, as Die Hard, and I'm like I watched it yesterday, and I'm like wow. This is amazing. I, I mean, I could I could totally see John McClane going through the uh, through the corridors and everything, but of course he's not barefoot. <laughs> so, right. but like, oh, it's it's just amazing. It, it, it's it's really it's really cool to see that Die Hard on the Enterprise. It's just really cool. <laughs> yeah. So the, the stumbling block was Michael Pillar uh, said, um, "You know what? I I just can't imagine." Picard would ever be alone on the ship. It's a huge ship. You would never empty out that whole ship. So here's what I'm really proud of about, I only wrote four episodes total in the Star Trek franchise, but you know, they had the science guys on staff and the writers would think of, you know, how do we do a show about Worf and his son or whatever it was about? And they would go to the science guys and they used to say to me, I'll go talk to the science guys. I would do this. And I always thought like, as a writer, that's kind of, as an outsider, especially I'm not on staff. I don't have access to the science guys. I, I wanted to come in with an idea, the German idea that was kind of science fiction. And then I did the reverse of, I think what, what they were very smartly doing to, to do episode after episode of a show. You think, what are we, what are we going to do with our characters? And then how do we back in the science idea? And I thought to come in as a freelancer, I always thought I got my job is to come in with kind of a cool science fiction technology and build an episode around it. So uh, the way I sold Die Hard and the Enterprise was I had done some research about naval ships uh, used to accumulate barnacles on their hull and it would slow the ship down. This is in the you know 19th century and um, or 18th century, maybe both. And they had to they had to they had to, they had to put the uh, ships in dry dock and scrape off on the barnacles. So I thought, what is the Star Trek equivalent of that? And I did some research and I came up with that. The, the, they accumulate a lot of baryon particles from traveling, uh, you know, fast than the speed of light from warping through space. And they had to go through the, what I lovingly called the giant car wash in the sky, the equivalent of like, uh, this is also going to be dated now, but the reference I used was how you degauss videotape. If you go back to the days of videotape, you would wipe them clean just by passing them through a degauss and it would demagnetize everything on the tape. So I said this was a similar process. And once I came up with all that, finally, again, I had to pitch this about two or three times. Michael Pillar said, well, I don't think I can say no to Die Hard on the Enterprise. So there's your answer. We we all knew we were doing Die Hard on the Enterprise. That is so awesome. I love it. <laughs> uh, did you find it difficult to balance the comedic and serious tone shifts in uh, Starship Mine? Um, no, but I have to give credit where credit is due. Ron Moore really kind of spearheaded the whole 
data small talk thing. Um, we spent days trying to come up with what would round this out because unlike the inner light starship mind, you had to have a component with the other characters and you had to give them something to do. And then I don't remember who exactly thought of it, but we realized let's make it all part of the same plan. And then the question was, what were they doing to kill time until they had to go into action mode on the ground? And Ron came up with the small talk thing. And uh, I honestly don't remember how much we talked about. And then I wrote it. And then if he did a polish on that, but I have to, I have to credit that part of it with him as an outsider, not being on staff. I don't know if I would have known exactly what the line was to go with, uh, with the humorous aspect of it. You know, that's actually one of my, one of my favorite parts on that whole entire thing was that, uh, or, uh, on that, uh, it was one of my favorite parts of that episode is that data. We actually see data, uh, I guess going out, out of character. Cause we always see him as this straight edge, you know, Android like uh, character. And then now we see him like he has personality or something. Obviously he's mimicking someone, but it's just, it's, it's really a great refresher. And, you know, it's just, you know, we, uh, with all the repetitive ga- uh, gags, not standard for a uh, Star Trek episode, who is responsible for the saddle joke? Oh, um, which part was the joke? I mean, there was a part where he, he literally had to go back for his saddle. What's the joke? Well, yeah, it was it, the whole joke was that uh, so you know every man uh, every or every serious writer has a saddle, and it just yeah. it, it just seemed like you obviously we knew he wanted to get away from the reception and uh, that's right and wanted to uh, do something else other than that. But I mean, it was like it was in the beginning, and then of course he knocked someone out or at least uh, staggered someone uh, with the saddle. And then of course, at the end we, we, uh, we talk about, or they, uh, they talk about it in the funny enough, the um, sick bay. And, you know, it was like, Oh, every man, uh, every serious writer has a, uh, has a saddle, you know, that kind of, it, yeah. was that, was that considered to be a yeah. joke or. Yeah. That, no, it's, it's, it's a bit of a runner there, but, uh, um, uh, yeah, we again, we spent much time figuring out, okay, why is Picard going to go back up to the ship? If, if they kicked everybody off the ship, there should be no reason for him to be up there. And so, again, this was work in the room. I remember it was me and Ron and Jerry Taylor and uh, Joe Minofsky were in the room working on this. You know, it just came out of the room. We figured out that he, he needed to get away from the guy. Um and what is his hobby and what did he need to do? And then, and then, of course, the question was, well, can't you just get a saddle when you're riding? And so that's that's why the line came in. We had to justify that he needed to get his own saddle. Nice. That's awesome. And, you know, funny enough, he knocks out Tim Russ, who happens to be Tuvok, right. uh, in that's Voyager. Right. That's right. That's right. That was his first brush with star trek outstanding <laughs> well let's let's talk about d space nine i know we're a tng uh episode but we might as well talk about it uh so one of the questions from actually one of our uh hosts he asks one of the most loved friendships in start in star trek was between bashir and o'brien on d space nine how do you just yeah. de- <laughs> how d- how did you decide in choosing them as main characters for armageddon game which is the major flashpoint for their friendship? Well, um, you know, the funny thing is I got that assignment again on a pitch before the show had ever aired. 
So I didn't even know what these characters were going to be. Now, Star Trek is different than a lot of shows. They give you like a giant stick, another acronym here. Uh, I was going to say as thick as a phone book, but some of your uh, listeners have never seen a phone book. But a very thick book with detailing everything about the operation of the ship and what the show is all about, probably the characters. But from that, it's it's hard to really get who these characters are and because uh, the show had never been on the air when I wrote it. I went and pitched something that was in the vein of what it was. Right in the pitch, Michael Piller kind of turned things around a little and I worked on So instead of being a thing where I go and work on it for five months, I guess I'd already proved myself. So we just kind of worked down the room and, and figured out the storyline there. Um, and I think, I think they knew that these characters, as he conceived them, were not friendly with each other. And so I don't know what number episode this was, but by whatever episode this was going to be, um, I think as the story evolved, it just seemed clear that they should bond from this because they're on this bonding experience. So it's definitely Michael that put these two together. And I think originally it was because he said they didn't get along. That's what would make it so interesting is that two people, it's just a classic buddy kind of thing that it's two guys who initially don't get along. And it just seemed inevitable that by the end of this, they would have bonded. Right, exactly. Yeah, and it's definitely, uh, it was evident that, it was definitely evident that uh, uh, O'Brien absolutely did not like uh, like Bashir because he's this young buck coming out of medical school and he's got this big head and everything. And, you know, it, it definitely um, brings it brings them to, the you know, side by side and uh, actually cement that uh, that friendship that we all love from there on uh, there on out. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's that gives you a little insight into the inner workings of TV. I had never seen these characters. When I wrote that episode, that's amazing. I, I that's 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 just amazing that they would give you an assignment like that without even knowing what the show was really going to be. <laughs> Maybe they had well, they other knew ideas. The show was going, no, no, no. They knew what the show was going to be. It just hadn't. It, they they hadn't completed any episodes to show me. And um, I think you know that's the job of the producers on the show is to smooth those things out. But I think they had enough faith in me at that point to go off and uh, and write this one. And we we always. And Star Trek, more than any other show, we always did a lot of talking about what the episode was going to be and then wrote like a pretty detailed treatment on the episode. That's I would have to do that. So at that point, I'm kind of taking everything we've worked out in the writer's room and writing it in prose form. And that's a chance for everybody to kind of fine tune it and say, well, here's what they would really do and that. And of course, you get many bites at the apple. Then you do it again at script stage. You get notes and you do a second draft and then they rework a little but um i think we had talked out quite a bit by the time you know i wrote the uh final draft of uh how their relationship would progress wow awesome <laughs> so did you want to talk about passengers coming I mean, we were talking about about it off mic and uh did you want to talk about passengers <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I don't remember that much about it. I just know that I thought it's one of, the, one of the worst things I've ever written. I just, I, in retrospect, when I saw how it came out and also what I wrote, it just, it was not, it was not a shining moment for me as a writer. And I readily admit it. I don't think I've had many people come up to me over the years saying, oh yeah, the passenger loved that episode. No, people obviously love the inner light. It's very nice to hear how many people really like Starship Mine because, um, 
there was something specific I was trying to do in that episode and, and it accomplished it. And, uh, and then Armageddon game for all the reasons you said, but nobody ever came up to me and said, oh, my God, you wrote The Passenger. So I think people are not surprised to hear me say that it was, it was, it was not my most shining moment. Oh, that's okay. You're all right. <laughs> we, I, I, I actually, one of my favorite uh, season, or I'm sorry, one of my favorite uh, series is actually Deep Space Nine. And really... I'm a fan all the way through. It doesn't matter if, if the story sucks or not, or you think it's story, it sucks or anything like that. It's just it. It's Deep Space Nine. I love it. Absolutely love it. <laughs> True fan here. Well, I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> so I appreciate, regardless if you if you thought it was wasn't good or not. I I love it. It doesn't matter. <laughs> well, and by the way, I want to clarify. I'm not saying that. Oh, I watched and they did a crappy job of it. I'm just talking about my work on that. It's not my, it's not my favorite script. It's not my favorite story. The whole the guy's carrying around his whole mind and his fingernail or something. I don't know. It's just wacky. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. So you did work on Trek Lords and Trek, uh, Trek justice. So how tech, tech, Lord, tech Lords, tech, tech Lord. I'm sorry. Sorry. I'm reading it wrong. Yeah. I'm reading it I wrong. Think, I think, I think Bill Shatner did that intentionally. It sounds a little like Trek, but it's, it's not tech. Tech was the kind of a, uh, a drug, a techno drug. It's sort of like Miami Vice in the future when you come right down to it. How closely did you work with uh, Shatner on adaptations of Tech Lords and Tech Justice? And how does it differ uh, when writing an adaptation versus an original teleplay? Um, were either of those adaptations? Was there a book, Tech Lords? I know he wrote some books with it, but was what was Tech Lord the book first? I think so. This is like I said. This is a question from a from a uh, one of our hosts. <laughs> so I, I, to be I, quite... I, I don't. I, I he wrote. You know, I know he wrote. He wrote uh, Tech War, and I don't know what the other um, volumes were called. But I actually came on Tech Lords. This is my first brush with this. With this series, with this, it, I, I worked on it when it was not a series. It was the series of TV movies, so they were two-hour movies. So I came on board that one actually to uh, do a rewrite on that one. So I wasn't adapting anything except a script that was given me. So that was my first work on that. Tech Justice was an original idea I came up with uh, in concert with uh, Bill um, on a on a flight from LA to Toronto to the production office. We kind of worked together on that story and that became tech justice. Is there any work that we uh, possibly have to look forward uh, with you uh, anytime in the future that you may want to talk about? Um, well, uh, you know, I was one of the writer producers on the hundred this season and season four uh, has uh, just started and we've had two episodes on and there's more to come. So very, um, uh, proud of my work on that show and pleased to have been a part of it. It's, it's, um, it's a show that's run by a terrific writer named Jason Rothenberg. So I'm sort of on his staff working on that. A lot of, a lot of cool things happening this season. Um, right now, since we're, we're in between season seasons in the writer's room, I, um, yeah, I have a new spec pilot. I wrote that, uh, I'm, I kind of wrote it just as, because it's a story I wanted to tell. It sort of borrows from the inner light a little bit. But I'm out there with that. I'm developing some things. But this is one thing that I'm particularly close to because of its ties to the inner light. It's called The Convergence. And, you know, I guess I keep going back to this same trope quite a bit about 
who are we really? Are we, are we the memories in our head or can we distinguish between our memories that we get through our senses and memories that might just be planted in our brain? That was the inner light. So it, the, the premise of the convergence is that, you know, the, uh, the military has a new technique to get information out of people because they're not really allowed to torture people anymore. So they, they have, there's a scientist who's figured out how to download a, the human connectome, the connectome being the map of the human brain, just like the genome is the map of our genes, the connectome is the map of our brain. And I did some research on this. Uh, and But the problem is when you download a human brain, we don't have any computer big enough to hold all that. But there is one thing that can hold a human brain, and that's another human brain. So they've got a guy they kind of recruit on the fly to be the recipient of this terrorist brain. And what they didn't count on is then he gets the information they need, but he's also now become partly who this terrorist is. And the interesting spin on it is the terrorist is a woman. So it's a guy who's kind of a science nerd guy. Um, who now suddenly has a female terrorist brain inside his head, and that's the convergence. Wow, that's that's a very interesting uh, plot. I, I that sounds very interesting. I'll have to actually look, oh, look out for that. That sounds very interesting. You piqued my interest. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. Let's see. Well, I'm, you know, I, I've I've got some other things in development, but that's one of them. That's one where I, I instead of just pitching a series idea, I wrote a complete script and. People are reading it, and we'll see. I mean, what I think is cool about it is, like I said, it does go back to some of the same stuff as the inner light. I appreciate you coming on and talking with me, Morgan. It's been an honor. I enjoyed this completely. It's it's just an honor to be able to talk to you, sir. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, and, and great talking to you, Richard. I appreciate it. Interviewing Morgan Gendel isn't the only thing we've been talking about lately on the network. Here's a preview of what you might have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm. To the journey! I'm a little worried that Belana didn't care enough about Chakotay to try any Klingon medicine on him. (laughs) (laughs) What would it be? Just blood wine? Klingon bloodletting? I don't know. Percussive maintenance. (laughs) (laughs) A nice warm bowl of (laughs) goth. To the face. Klingon chicken soup. Or even banana pancakes. Prune juice. <laughs> a warrior's prune. Chakotay, have a have a bite of a heart of targ and wash it down with some prune juice. Warp five. Well, they decided to come out with something called the 1701 line, which is always cute. Retailers always want to do 1701, or they make the price of $17.01, and that's real cute. Except when you have 100,000 people who want a figure, and you're only releasing 1701 of that figure, you're disappointing a lot of completists. Literary treks. But still, at the same time, you're left with that what if, you know. And I, and I know that, like, the Parallels episode gives you a, a couple of brief glimpses of Riker in command after Picard is dead. And, and it doesn't seem to be going well for Mr. Riker at that point. Stage 9, a podcast about the people who make Star Trek. 
He has worked with Robert Rodriguez. He was Rodriguez's cinematographer before Rodriguez started shooting his own movies, having worked with him on From Dusk Till Dawn. Not the TV show From Dusk Till Dawn, the original masterpiece. Maybe, okay. Maybe see, the best. That, that's always uh, well, where we go right off the rails right okay. there. You're throwing in the word masterpiece right there. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. This episode of Earl Grey is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for iPhone, iPod, iPad, Kindle, Android, Windows Phone, plus Mac or PC. To get your free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Thank you, Audible, for supporting Earl Grey and Trek FM. If you are a weekly listener and would like to directly help Earl Grey, please consider becoming a patron of Trek FM. At patreon.com slash trekfm, you can choose a pledge level and receive rewards for becoming a Trek FM patron. For example, $5 a month gets you into our patron zone, where you get exclusive content and access to our early releases of our podcast. At the $15 a month level, you get to participate in our monthly roundtable discussions with other patrons of the network. At $25 a month, you get associate producer credits for any podcast that you choose. We would like to take this moment to thank our current Patreon associate producer, Michael Huter. Thank you so much for supporting Earl Grey. Another way to support our network and get cool stuff is to visit Redbubble at redbubble.com slash shop slash trekfm. You can find amazing designs for shirts, pillows, phone cases, and more. And with each purchase, a portion of the sales goes to Trek FM. You can connect with other Trek FM listeners on our Facebook discussion group called the Babel Conference. You can search this, B-A-B-L, through the search field, or you can like the facebook.com slash trekfm page for show updates and announcement. The network is also at Twitter at Trek FM. You can listen to every show on the network at Trek FM, with links for iTunes, streaming services, and a direct download link. If you would like to contact Lee, Richard, or Amy, that's me, visit trek.fm slash contact to send us a subspace message or find us on social media. Until next time, please join us for another cup of Earl Grey. Until then, today is a good day to die.